My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today my guest is Emily Draban Conley. Hi, Emily. Welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Hi. Thanks for having me. Did I pronounce your name correct? You did, Draban Conley. You got it. Fantastic. Well, Emily is a research scientist and director of business development at uh, 23andMe. Um, and I have to begin our conversation today with a little disclaimer of mine, and that is that it's been probably over five years now that I had made that choice for myself, and I actually uh, went ahead and did the 23andMe phenotype SNP test that they're offering to their customers. So while I intend to ask some tough questions today for myself, I made that choice long time ago. So with that out of the way, Emily, I'm so happy to have you on our show. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. So let's jump right in. Uh, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do? Sure, sure. So I am a neuroscientist by training. I did my PhD at Stanford. Um, I spent several years at the National Institutes of Health as a research fellow. And I actually thought that I would remain in academia Um, But I slowly started to get a little bit frustrated with the pace of research. It felt like things weren't moving fast enough, and we were making some discoveries in genetics that were really exciting, but they weren't really being translated to to the the general population. And so I joined 23andMe five years ago, um, really with that intention of bringing so much of what we learned about human genetics to individuals through the 23andMe product. And so now I am the director of business development here. So I oversee um, our research partnerships. That's fantastic and, and fascinating. So, so tell me, what's your biggest dream then? What's the best case scenario you can ever envision in your field and what you do? In our field, I think one of the, the really exciting areas in the field is um, understanding differences from for this is totally from a research perspective but thinking about how we can use genetics to better understand who should be taking which kind of medication and so we're starting to see that with cancer now where people are genotyping tumors um, and on the research side we're thinking a lot about you know how could we actually use DNA to predict um, which medication might work for one person versus another person. And I think that those are, we're starting to make advances now. And I think that in our lifetime, we'll see some, some pretty significant improvements so that people don't suffer by taking a drug that doesn't work for them or gives them terrible side effects. So basically, I think you're talking about personalized medicine. Absolutely. Sounds good. So tell us a little bit more about your company. Who is 23andMe for and what do you guys offer? So 23andMe is a direct-to-consumer genetic testing company, and we provide people with access to their genetic information. Um, So we're one of the few companies that that make this available. And the process is really simple. People who are interested go to our website, 23andMe.com. They purchase a um, a 23andMe saliva collection kit. We send it to you in the mail. You spit into a tube. And that goes back to our lab. And then we analyze your DNA at about 750,000 points. Um, or SNPs through your DNA, and then that information gets uploaded into your own personal 23andMe account where you can access your raw data and we can give you an interpretation of your genetic ancestry. Mm-hmm. And, and so what kind of information is it that you're offering to those people and how is that useful? Why should they care? 
Yeah, so in the United States, what we're offering is access to raw genetic data, as well as an interpretation of your ancestry. So where your distant ancestors come from, where your more recent ancestors come from, we can give you a breakdown of, you know, do you have any Native American ancestry or Ashkenazi ancestry? You know, what percentage of your DNA may come from China, um, you know, or from Japan? And I think that, that there's really meaningful information embedded in our genetics. And for people to be able to access that, um, it, you know, it, it's, I, I think there's kind of a, a way of knowing ourselves more deeply. There's also health implications. Um, so, you know, if someone has Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry that they didn't know about, they may want to think about other health tests. Um, their, their doctor may, may have other recommendations for them based on that information. So it's, it's really valuable data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I myself, for example, discovered at time 2.8% Neanderthal which was really no surprise to anyone who knows me, <laughs> unfortunately, or, or, or fortunately, I don't know. But um, let me just add that uh, 23andMe provides information in four categories, medication response, disease risk, inherited traits, and inherited conditions. So, uh, and I think you guys have already, what, 850,000 customers? Yeah. So in terms of the, the information that we provide, we, we, the categories you listed were reports that we provided in the, he- in the health category in the United States. And then at the end of 2013, we received a letter from the FDA and had to stop offering that health interpretation. And we've been working really diligently um, to go through the regulatory review process so that we can bring the health product back. And we had big news earlier this year where we received marketing authority from the FDA. So the first time ever that the FDA has um, granted this kind of approval for a direct-to-consumer genetic testing product. And this was for our Bloom's Syndrome report. Um, But so we currently are not providing the categories that you just listed. We're not currently providing those in the United States. So we're working to bring that back. Yeah, I am. I am fortunately for me in Canada. So... Uh, and and I actually did this, as I said, five years ago, so I had access to all my data. Now, okay, let's talk a little bit about the FDA kind of cease and desist letter, because some people were shocked, some people were dismayed. I myself, I was like kind of both. Like, to me, it was almost beyond, I couldn't... Uh, comprehend why would someone bar me from this information? For example, in my case, I have very long history of cancer. My my mom passed away at 38 from cancer. My father had his first heart attack at 56. Both my grandparents had diabetes. So, and one of them had prostate cancer. So I was very concerned about all those issues. And now if I were to take the test after that FDA letter, was submitted to you. And if I were in the United States, I wouldn't have had access to that information. And, and that to me is, is like not only surprising, but kind of potentially highly dangerous, actually, because it can impact people who have not only the right, but the necessity to, to access that knowledge, and, and, and it would prevent them from doing so. Yeah, yeah. When the, when we received the FDA letter, it stirred up a, a tremendous amount of controversy on both sides. You know, people seeing both sides of, of the argument there, and 
Um, I think for us as a company, you know, we, we recognize the FDA's desire to regulate this space and to make sure that the data that we're providing are accurate and actionable for individuals. Um, and so we've been working really hard through that process and certainly look forward to a time when we can have the health product back on the market. We're um, planning to, to relaunch health in the United States at the end of this year um, or later, later this year. And so, but, we, but I absolutely agree. I mean, this is information that for a lot of people is life-changing. Um, it's so fundamental. It's core to who we are. And we believe as a company that, that individuals should be able to access that. Yeah. And, and in my case, I was actually very fortunate. I was actually mostly good news. So all of my major concerns, I was very substantially decreased uh, uh, risk than the average. So I was just very fortunate in that sense. But let me grab two words that you mentioned there, accurate and actionable. How do we define those terms? Yeah, that's a great question. So accuracy is measured in two ways. The first way is when you do the genotyping, are you accurately measuring an individual's genotype? So you're saying their genotype is TT, is that accurate? And that's the first piece. The second piece is the interpretation of that data. You're saying their genotype is TT, and that means that they are at you know, increased risk for developing a certain kind of cancer. Is that information, is that interpretation of the data accurate? So you have to prove both of those pieces. Um, and with our FDA submission for Bloom syndrome, um, the, the testing that we did around the accuracy of the genotyping, I mean, it was incredibly accurate. We had nearly 100% concordance um, between the method that, that we use and then the confirmatory method you use to test it. Um, and then that interpretation piece, that is the, that is with blooms, it's very straightforward where it's um, an autosomal recessive disease. But, um, you know, with other diseases there, that, that's the piece that, that can be where there's a little bit more, um, you know, kind of room. And so that's what we have to establish with each and every report. Because to be honest with you, that was what kind of the criticism of my doctor. When I actually had my test done originally, I printed out everything and I went to, to see my doctor because I had my uh, sort of annual checkup anyway. And, and I thought, why not bring a printout and put it in my file so that he has it? And he just kind of looked through it and he's like, yeah, you just wasted your time and money with these people. And I was like, what do you mean by this? Like, and he's his argument was mainly that there is no, there's only vague clues. Uh, that's to say no idea what and if something of clinical importance can we do based on the information that you may or may not discover in your gene pool. Yeah, you know, I think I have a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, the first thought is kind of in general, the field of genetics has evolved so much, even in just the last 10 years, that a lot of physicians, when they trained, didn't do the kind of genetic training that, that physicians in med school today are doing, because we just know a whole lot more than we did, say, 20 or 30 years ago. The second piece is that it depends on the kind of genetic information we're talking about. So um, Bloom syndrome is a good example. That's a disease that's genetically determined. It is not, a, there's not an environmental component. Your genes will determine whether or not you develop Bloom syndrome. Um, so the genetics are really clear. That's in comparison to something like breast cancer. Um, and BRCA is a really well-known example. You know, Angelina Jolie has been very outspoken about her experiences there, where genetics, uh, they, they play a role in your risk. They're not deterministic. Um, and so, you know, I, I disagree with your doctor. I think that there's actually a lot of valuable information we can tell you about your genetics today. 
Um, and it's growing all the time. You know, we're understanding more and more about genetics, the role of the environment, how those things interact all the time. Um, so I, I do think that this information is valuable for health. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I vastly agree with you, but I, I even had the discussion afterwards with my sister-in-law, um, and, and she, she was telling me, I don't want to know what my chances of developing breast cancer are. And I was like, well, if that's the way you want to approach it, that, I mean, I, there's nothing I can say to you, but for me, ignorance is never the right approach. For me, it's better to have knowledge and to be aware rather than to remain in the dark. That's, that's my starting point. But I guess that's kind of the choice that everybody has to make for themselves. Yeah, exactly. And, and we feel at 23andMe that you should have that choice. You should be able to say, no, I don't want to know, or yes, I do want to know, and here's how I can easily access this information. I, I totally agree with you. Absolutely. Now, you're only talking about getting a permission to release the test results for Bloom syndrome. Does that mean you have to get 249 other approvals to get to where you were five years ago? Yeah, so the good news is with the Bloom syndrome ruling, um, part of the decision from the FDA was that all diseases that are like Bloom's, that are autosomal recessive diseases, no longer require what's called pre-market review. So you don't have to submit an application to the FDA um, before you can market your product. You do still have to do all of the, the analytical validation that I was talking about, and you have to do user testing to make sure people can understand the results. So you still have to do the work, but you can actually go directly to market with your product, um, which is great news. So when we, when we launch, um, relaunch our health product later this year, it will not just be the Bloom Syndrome Report. It will be more than that. It will include some other diseases like Bloom's. Um, but for other things like BRCA, for instance, those do have to be done uh, one at a time. Yeah, as I said, in my case, major concern was diabetes, prostate cancer, you know, cardiovascular, obesity, things like that. And, and so it, it would appear they're not coming anytime soon. Well, we're, we are, you know, working really hard um, through this process. I mean, we, our goal, of course, is to get as many reports into the product as quickly as possible. Um, and so we are continuing um, our, our work with the FDA in the submission process. And... But that information, that's only the case for the United States, right? So if anyone in Canada or the United Kingdom, for example, were to uh, do the test right now, they will have complete access to that information. Yeah, the regulations are different outside the United States. And other countries, the U.S. and the United Kingdom, U.S.S. Um, I'm not able to get too much into those products since this is a U.S.-based program. We can't market those products inside the United States, but you are correct that people in the U.K. and Canada can access their health reports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. And uh, let me ask you this. Who owns the data? Once, one, me? You do. You own your data. That, that's, that's very good, but, but people would say, well the company has it on their servers. So how is it that you own the data if they, they have it? So you own the data in that you can do whatever you like with it. You can download your data from 23andMe and share it or not. If you choose to close your account, your data evaporates from our system completely. Um, but we really feel fundamentally that it's your information and you should be able to choose what happens with it. Now, one of the things that you can choose at 23andMe is you can opt in to participate in research. And so you can choose to share your data with hundreds of thousands of other people at 23andMe that are also opting in to research. And then that information can be used to make genetic discoveries. And I think that's 
to me, that was actually a huge draw of why I joined the company. Um, because I, the, the research platform that we've created here is unlike anything else in the world. And we now have about 80% of our customers opt in to participate in research. And so we're able to make discoveries at a pace that's just really unprecedented. But at the end of the day, it's your data and you get to decide what you do with it. Mm -hmm. So if I decide to opt out of any research and et cetera, that's a possibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. Who has access to my data on your service? So if you've opted out of research, then the, there's no access to any of the, the members of the research team. Your data is just used to create your 23andMe experience, and that's it. Um, if you've opted in to participate in research, then your aggregate data can be used uh, in research. And so what that means is when you're on the 23andMe website, we ask you questions about your health. So for you, we'd ask, you know, do you have a family history of diabetes and of cancer? Um, and then we could take that information and aggregate it with hundreds and thousands of other people that have told us their family history of cancer, for instance, to see if we can find genetic factors that predict a person's risk for cancer. And then in aggregate, that data can be shared. It can be published um, to, to benefit science. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I personally don't mind uh, sort of helping out in that way. But I, I recently interviewed... Um, Mark Goodman, who wrote this book called Future Crimes, he's the chair of uh, policy law and ethics at Singularity University. And we were discussing the, the hacking issue. Um, and the idea is that, you know, recently 110 million people's credit card information was downloaded by a 16-year-old Russian kid or something like that from Target. How is, for example, my 23andMe DNA data safe in your hands on your servers? Because that, that's an issue. Let's assume you, you have the most kind of privacy-focused predisposition in the company, and if I opt out of anything, no one has access to my data. What about hackers? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, privacy and security are something that 23andMe think a lot about. Um, we absolutely use gold standards, we use physical barriers, we use technical barriers. Um, and one of the critical things that we do is we separate your data. So your identifying information like your name and your address is stored completely separately and de-identified from your genetic data, which is also stored separately from your survey responses, like that, you know, if you'd said you'd had a family history of cancer. So all three of those pieces of information are stored separately. Are they encrypted? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We use heavy encryption. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I, we've, we've never had a security breach here. Um, we, we absolutely recognize that privacy and security are really important to our customers and important to us as a company. Um, so we're using the best of the best to make sure that, that we're protecting that information. Yeah, because, I mean, it's one thing to lose your credit card information. Then all you need to do is call your bank and get a new credit card. But your DNA is, is that's it. Yeah, it's precious. Right. So if they have it, they have it. Now, going back to, to the data, I, I think you had, was it about 850,000 people by now? Yeah, we have over 950,000 people have been genotyped with 23andMe. So we are rapidly approaching a million. Growing and growing. That's, that's fantastic. So what's the big deal about having so much data? What's the benefit of having a database that no one else in the world has? You know, this is so exciting to me as a scientist. So when you think about diseases, let's pick a complicated disease like Parkinson's disease. It's a really complicated disease. We've been studying it for decades and decades. 
We understand the pathology, but we don't understand what actually causes the pathology to happen. And it's likely because there are many different subgroups of patients um, where that all end up with Parkinson's, but kind of through different avenues to get there. And so the promise of big data is that you can take these really heterogeneous diseases and you can start to see patterns among groups of patients that you couldn't see if you were only studying 100 or 200 individuals. And so we've, are, we've been doing this. We've been looking at our database and identifying things that no one's been able to see before because we now have hundreds of thousands of individuals and their genetic information, and we can start linking these things together. And so that's what's really exciting to me is like for the complex diseases, though, things that have been so hard to solve, like depression and Parkinson's disease or MS, um, that once we have a big enough database, we're actually in a position to start really mapping the genetics of the disease and then identifying kind of the sub-patient populations and understanding what causes their disease to develop. So give me perhaps some recent examples of, of breakthroughs or progress that's really kind of inspiring and encouraging. Yeah, so in the Parkinson's space, we've, that, that's an area that we care a lot about as a company, and we've actually developed the largest cohort in the world of individuals with Parkinson's who've been genotyped. We have over 11,000 Parkinson's patients in the database. And um, through, with their help, we've been able to identify uh, multiple new genetic variants for Parkinson's that no one knew existed before. And this is exciting because it starts to give us clues into the underlying cause of Parkinson's, and it gives us clues into how to better treat it which of course is ultimately at the end of the day what patients want. They want therapies that are going to work for them. Um, so that's one example. But we also study areas that are potentially less well covered in more traditional academic settings, like motion sickness. Um, a lot of people are, suffer from motion sickness. I myself have suffered from motion sickness. Um, but there's not a lot of research on it. And we were able to do a study in you know, tens of thousands of people that some had motion sickness, some didn't, and identify for the first time very specific genetic factors that lead to motion sickness. Um, and so those are just a couple of examples, but we've done this model across lots of different disease areas. And one of the kind of add-on benefits is the open API that you guys are using. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's sort of the first ever genetics API. Um, and this is a way for partners um, to leverage genetic data uh, from, from 23andMe customers who would like to do that. So if you think about, you know, you can log in with Facebook through an API. We have a similar system where if there's a third party developing some kind of app, like there's an example um, looking at your ability uh, to, to your heart rate during exercise and your VO2 max. And so there's genetic factors that predict VO2 max. And while we don't report on that, you know, that's something that a third party can develop an app for. Uh, our customers can consent with the API and say, yeah, pull in my 23andMe data to give me my score on this and then use that. And so we, we have dozens of developers uh, using the API right now for really diverse, um, diverse set of, of applications. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, and, and I, I'm kind of looking to find out the name of the company right now, which is escaping me. But there was a company in London where I actually uploaded my uh, my own personal data. Uh, and they're giving sort of uh, more focused advice on uh, uh, workout routines and on uh, nutrition. And the two things that I got from there were, one, that I should be doing low carb myself. And two, that I am a fast recoverer when it comes to exercise, but I am prone to injuries, which is very much 
kind of my experience in life. Like I do very well with, with exercise and workouts, but I do tend to get injured too often to, for my liking. Yeah. And this goes back to like, you own your data. I mean, I think the API is really about that, that if there are other, you know, entities outside of 23andMe that can use your genetic information to inform you in some way, you should totally be able to do that. And we want to enable that. Yeah. And I, and I find it very, very helpful myself, but let me turn the table here. Did you do the test yourself and what were the major sort of changes or what was the big impact it had, if it had any on your own personal lifestyle? Yeah. Yeah. So I did 23andMe five years ago when I joined. It was the very first thing I did, uh, probably on my first day on the job. And um, I learned some interesting things about myself. Some of my, this was back when we had the health, the health reports in the U.S. And I had very interesting pharmacogenomic data. So multiple different medications where I either would have a sensitivity or where I may have an adverse side effect. And I, I, I'm super healthy. I'm not taking any of those medications right now, but it was definitely something to file away with my doctor. Um, and then on the ancestry side, that was also a little bit interesting for me. I found out I had some Jewish ancestry, which was a total surprise. My parents had no idea. And then we had a big debate about, did it come from my mom or my dad? And we got both of them tested. We found out it came from my dad's side, um, from some of his Irish ancestry, which was a little bit surprising. So it was definitely informative for me. Um, and, you know, as I go through stages in my life, thinking about becoming a parent that, you know, all the carrier testing is really important. And as I get older and, you know, may face some health, health issues, that genetic information will be something I continue to go back to. So let's connect this to the sort of the present day people who are sort of sitting on the edge and considering this. Uh, so what's the cost of, of, of the product right now? And what's the, the, the most interesting or relevant useful data that they would have access to given the FDA letter and the sort of the limitations you guys have to deal with? Yeah, so the product right now is $99 in the United States. Um, and in terms of, of the most relevant thing that you get access to, I mean, I, I think it differs for different people. For some people, the ancestry component is really interesting. Um, they, people may not have a great sense of their ancestry or maybe thought they had a great sense of it and then, and then are surprised. And as, as I said earlier, that can also have health implications. Uh, but I think accessing the raw data, I mean, for, for particularly savvy users, there is, you know, you can get access to your raw data and there are, are you know, you can, you can reference that to publications and other things that are out there. So that's, that's available as well. And there will be more and more third parties where you can potentially upload your own data and, and they will do that service of kind of interpretation for you. Right. Yeah. And that interpretation is not done by 23andMe. Right. Exactly. Um, now, let me ask you about this. Um, going back to sort of the accurate um, accurateness of the test, we are only doing what's called phenotype SNP testing, right? Yes. Yeah. So there's a difference between... So um, it's not the full genome. Exactly. Yeah. There's a difference between whole genome sequencing and genotyping. And so the 23andMe platform is a genotype-based test or a microarray chip. Um, so we're looking at about 750,000 points across your DNA. And what's interesting, and what I think a lot of people don't realize, is that as humans, we're over 99% identical in our DNA. So the DNA that we're actually testing with 23andMe is the places where we tend to differ. And those tend to be meaningful in terms of our ancestry or our health. So is there a benefit to doing a full genome test rather than a partial one like we are doing right now in terms of 
the accuracy of the information, perhaps the depth of it? Yeah, you can get different things by doing uh, doing sequencing. Um, and there are some diseases. So I'll, I'll come back to BRCA again because it's a really well-known example. So BRCA is a gene that's been linked to increased risk in breast and ovarian cancer. And there are a couple of, of SNPs, which is what 23andMe looks at, that, um, that have been strongly linked to uh, breast cancer in, in women of Jewish ancestry. Um, but there are hundreds of mutations in the BRCA1 and 2 genes that have been linked, um, linked to cancer. And so sequencing uh, is a different technology. It's not what we do. But that can allow you to look at every single variant in the BRCA1 and 2 gene. Um, and it can give you deeper information about your risk. And so there's definitely, there's, you, you know, trade-offs. So sequencing is a lot more expensive, but for some areas you get this, you know, you always get deeper information about the genetic sequence, but in some cases there's interpretation of that that is beyond what you can do with just typical SNP chip testing. Now in other diseases, it's not really as relevant. Like, um, you know, Bloom syndrome, for instance, what 23andMe does, there, you know, there's one known variant and that is the variant. Um, that is disease causing. And so even if you sequence that whole gene, it's not going to give you uh, more relevant information. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the cost and, and then the trends a little bit here, because I think it's been over a year now, maybe actually almost a year and a half or maybe two years that I talked to Dr. Church, uh, Dr. George Church. And, and he was telling me at the time that the full genome sequencing would be about give or take a thousand dollars. So, uh, how are we moving? Are we moving? Are we making progress on that front? Yeah, it really depends. That $1,000 number is kind of in the best case scenario if you have your own lab and you've got a whole lot of machine, you know, sequencing machines. Um, that, that's, you know, I would say it's probably more around $2,000-ish right now. Um, you know, there's volume dependencies on how many people you're sequencing. But with the price, the, the, the main point is that the price is moving dramatically down. So it used to be $100,000, and now we're, we're down to a lower price point. So that absolutely, you know, as that cost comes down, it moves us to a place where we can think about having a consumer product that is a sequencing-based product. I think cost is the big gate. Mm -hmm. and, and let me push you a little bit on this here, because part of the amazing part of the conversation with him was the fact that he told me that uh, basically DNA sequencing capabilities were beating Moore's law by a factor of four, five, and sometimes even six for the past, I don't know, five or six years. And and that was two years ago. So if he was saying, even if it was best case scenarios, let's say two years ago, right now, best case scenario should be more like 500 bucks. Yeah, it's, it's not. <laughs> not for whole genome sequencing. So what's holding it? What's holding us, if anything? There are still some fixed costs, um, reagents and things, uh, lab technicians and their time, the overhead you've got to buy. I mean, if you look at the Illumina sequencers, these are multi-million dollar machines. Um, so th those components stay in. I do still think the price is going to continue dropping over time. Um, and I think this is exciting for research. It's exciting for consumers. Um, so, I, you know, I think we'll definitely see kind of an affordable whole genome happen in our lifetime. So, yeah, I mean, we are more in the exponential curves here. So let me ask you, how do you see it, not in our lifetime, but let's say in the next five years, both in terms of cost and accessibility? And, and what are you guys working on it? Because right now you have a very competitive product, $99, but it's not the full genome. Uh-huh. That's, that is correct. So, and the big question is, how much more value does a consumer get out of a whole genome, even setting the cost aside? Say, say you could do it for 
super cheap. You know, is there that much more interpretation we can give you? And there is a fair amount more that we can give you on sequencing. And, you know, my estimate is in the next five years, the cost is going to come down. And what we can tell you will increase. Those two things will happen simultaneously. So I, I certainly, you know, sequencing is something we're thinking a lot about as a company. Um, and, you know, kind of stay tuned to hear from us on that topic. Um, I, you know, I think there's, in addition to the value to the consumer, there's also a ton of value to researchers because you're looking at more of the genome um, when you're sequencing. Yeah, because one thing is that sort of the shrinking cost of the sort of making efficiency with the machines, but the other one is also the scaling efficiency, right? When you have more and more people being tested and you produce more and more machines, you can make it cheaper. So I am hoping that within five years, we'd have $100 full, full genomes. I think that would be fantastic. Is it unrealistic, though, or is it? Uh, for a whole genome in five years, I think that's a pretty ambitious goal for under $100. Um, I think that's pretty ambitious. But I do think that the cost will come down. And, and on your point about accessibility, I mean, I, I think also we will see the um, sequencing or at least genetic testing happening more broadly and happening as part of the healthcare system, as part of routine clinical care. I mean, I think one of the things that can be a little frustrating is that so there, there was a study that it takes like 17 years for a, a new, you know, technology to become fully, you know, established in the, in the medical practice. So it may be a while before doctors are really comfortable with this um, and doing it routinely, but it's going to happen. It's pretty inevitable. There's valuable data in our DNA that impacts our health. And that information can help healthcare providers do a better job of treating us as patients. So it's, it's you know, it's coming. I mean, the tidal wave has started. Mm -hmm. I, I, I totally agree with you. And I've done actually a number of interviews on the topic. Now, going back to the big data, um, I previously interviewed uh, David Ferrucci, who was the team leader behind Watson. Um, what's the benefit or the connection between big data in terms of DNA databases like yours and artificial intelligence? And can we make the connection? Can we put Watson to work with you or for you? Gosh, you know, that's a great question. It's a little bit outside my, my domain expertise. I mean, I think ultimately the promise of DNA is that it, it's like a code. Exactly. Um, but there, there's multiple factors that lay on top of that, right? There's like DNA and environment. And, you know, so it's not just the DNA, but the DNA is really core and it's a code. And the goal is to kind of crack that code. How can we understand, you know, risk for disease and aging and all of these biological processes in light of our genetics? Um, and so we, you know, our, our research team, we have a robust research team. We have over 30 PhDs in house um, that are working on this huge data set um, and using some pretty sophisticated statistical methods to try and understand the relationship between genetics and disease. Um, taking that to the next step around artificial intelligence, I mean, uh, it's, it's not outside the realm of possibility. It's not what we do at 23andMe, um, but, I, but I'm sure that people are thinking about it. Because, I mean, that's basically what smart, smart algorithms do, and they're not even considered technically AI necessarily. So, uh, and, and Watson's already being employed to diagnose medical diseases uh, in, in variety of, of situations and cases, and is supposedly outperforming the experts in the field. Uh, so I don't see how this will be different per se, and, and perhaps it's, it's, it will be a field where AIs like Watson would shine even more. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I do think you bring up this a point around kind of genetics and diagnosis, and that, that is happening already in certain diseases where the genetics are really well understood, where we can say, oh, based on your genetics, you know, it looks like you have hemochromatosis. Um, and I, my, my estimation is that over time, our knowledge of genetics will increase so much that that will become a great, you know, genetics as part of the process of seeing your doctor and understanding what's going on with you will become a lot more common. Mm -hmm. Let me throw in a few audience questions here. Of course, the first one goes uh, naturally to my wife. Uh, and she kind of mercilessly criticizes me because out of 170 interviews, I probably have half a dozen of them with women. Uh huh. So, is it fair for me to say that I just work with what I have? That that you know, there's not too many women in those positions in those fields that we are talking about, or am I completely wrong and I should do better job? And if that's the case, what is to be done? I mean, maybe a little bit of both. I think we know that for a long time there there have been, you know, less women in science. That's really changing now. If you look at PhD programs today, um, there there's a much more even split between men and women. And so I think, you know, in the next 10 years, 20 years, we're going to see a lot more women in science and leading companies. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very exciting. 23 Me is a company that's run by a woman. We were founded by, um, co-founded by two women. Um, and, and Ann Wojcicki continues as our CEO, which is, you know, fantastic to see her leadership. So I, I am always pleased when I meet other women in science and business. Um, and, you know, I think there are, there are more of us coming, um, certainly in the future. Yeah, and that's kind of my response. I'm just usually telling her, just give me some time. In five years or in 10 years, it will be probably only women. Because here, <laughs> in some cases, I'm just watching what's happening at the University of Toronto, for example. Here, we have... Uh, even in places like engineering, 54% last year were women. In engineering, let alone in, in the other sciences, we have close to 60 in some cases. Yeah. It's, if you look at that versus 20 years ago, it's really different. So it's very exciting to see that. Absolutely. Now, Cynthia Stewart sent this question, which really surprised me. But anyway, so she's asking this. I've read there are physical side effects of being a natural redhead. I would like to know if these side effects are anecdotal or factual, if Mrs. Conley has an opinion. Because, I mean, my initial response would be there wouldn't be any side effects of being redhead, just like there wouldn't be any side effects of being blonde or brunette or... Right. You know, it's, a, it's an empirical question. So um, it's certainly something that can be asked. And, and one of the things, it's actually something that 23andMe in a way is suited to do. So what's cool about our research platform is we have hundreds of thousands of people with their genetic information. And we ask them a lot of questions about their health, but we also ask them questions about a wide array of things. Like, did you grow up in a rural area? Did you grow up drinking well water? Have you been exposed to pesticides? So we can start to look for relationships between variables in a way um, that is broader perhaps than a lot of traditional approaches. And we recently discovered for the first time genetic variants associated with being a redhead. Um, so we can predict with a reasonable amount of accuracy whether or not someone in our database has red hair, uh, which is interesting. So it's certainly something, you know, I mean, I don't think we've done any analysis to look at whether redheads are more likely to be diabetic, for instance, or, or have other, you know, related conditions. Uh, but it's something that, that could be investigated. Yeah, I, I am not an expert. I mean, I, I was just surprised. But um, let me ask you this. What's the 
kind of isn't gene therapy the natural logical next step which comes after testing in other words first we ident we we learn the alphabet we identify the letters then we start you know kind of reading full sentences then we kind of interpret the meaning of these sentences and then we open up the blank page and we start writing ourselves yeah i mean gene therapy i agree with with that analogy um certainly that understanding genetics will be a foundation for understanding disease and that will lead to um, improvements in how we treat disease and we can treat disease in a lot of ways and gene therapy is one way but it's a very specific way um, and it's not always necessary. So if you look at cancer, for instance, that there's great examples where we've used genetics to discover, you know, HER2 positive tumors that respond to a very specific kind of chemotherapy. And that works well um, in that instance. And that's not a gene therapy. Um, but, I, you know, there, it does look like gene therapy is starting to make some progress. Uh, and that's certainly very much interwoven with our ability to understand genetics in the first place. Yeah, and actually Terence Lee Reed submitted the question, which is kind of the next step here, that is, what are the implications of technologies like CRISPR when they're used to alter human DNA? And of course, there was this recent case in China that made headlines around the world. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's really fascinating, um, the CRISPR technology and, and where that technology goes. It's obviously not something 23andMe is involved with in any way. Um, but it, the, the fact that we now, it looks like, have the ability to edit genes inside living cells um, is, is quite interesting. Um, whether or not that will become a widespread technology, you know, remains to be seen. And I think there are a lot of ethical questions that, that people have around that. And there's also cases where that kind of technology isn't needed, where we can treat things in other ways. But, it, it, you know, I think the next five years of CRISPR technology will be really interesting. But that's kind of part of the sort of ethical criticism that people have towards you. Yes, you're not offering that service, but they say, well, you go to 23andMe, you do the test with your wife, you identify you have a problem with your genes, then you go to China or to India or somewhere else and you get whatever you want done, done. Yeah, I mean, that's... So you are definitely the first step in that process. I, you know, I don't know that I, that I agree with that. I mean, I think there are really different kinds of technologies. Um, I do think that genetic testing, so like carrier testing, for instance, a lot of parents, before they have a baby, they get screened to see if they carry cystic fibrosis, for instance. Right. Um, and, you know, that, that's really important. And then they have decisions they can make about whether they want to do um, PGD or not. Um, but that's very much outside of, of what we do here at 23andMe. Mm -hmm. Emily, we're kind of approaching the last two or three minutes of our interview. So let me try and squeeze in two or three quick questions here. So first of all is, uh, what's... Yeah, maybe one question, if that's okay. We've got people banging our door here. So where can people find more about you and your work, Emily? About 23andMe and our research? You personally and, and your company, of course. Um, so we have a, on our website is a, is a great resource. So 23andMe.com, um, on, on the website, we've got a link to all of our research publications. Um, and so you can see a great deal about, about our science there. And some of my publications are listed on that site as well. Um, and there's also, we have a media center. So if you just Google 23andMe media center, that is a link to all of our press releases, 
Um, and that's also a great way to kind of stay up to date with what's happening. And then the last resource, actually, this is probably my favorite resource, is we have a blog, um, the 23andMe blog, and it's active and we post a lot there about what we're up to. Um, and so that's a great resource as well. All right. The last question is, what's the final message that you want our viewers and listeners to take away from this 45-minute conversation with you today? You know, I think the message is that we're in a really exciting time. You know, we're in a, a genomic revolution where we're learning so much about DNA and we have so much left to learn. Um, so we're really at the infancy in many ways. But I, I personally am quite excited by where, where our knowledge is and the potential for where we have to go. And so I think that, you know, if people want to learn more about their DNA, 23andMe is an excellent way to do that. If people want to contribute to research um, and to our understanding of disease, 23andMe is an excellent way to do that. So I'm very hopeful about the future and I'm excited to see, you know, we should have this conversation again in five or 10 years and see where we are. Absolutely. But for today, Emily Drabant Conley, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah.